Well, welcome, friends. I'm Pastor Tim. It is my honor to be here to serve among you. I am so grateful that all of you have uh, chosen to be in worship here today. We're kicking off a new series this week, which I'm very excited about. It's called Cliché, The Truth Behind the Bumper Sticker. Um, and it's a series that's going to look at three different verses that are often used, often tattooed verses that become cliches in our life. And today we're going to focus on Exodus 14, 14, which says, the Lord himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. So I'm really excited about this series, and I hope um, that God speaks to you through it. Um, so let's continue this morning in an attitude of worship and song. Let's please stand, shall we? Would you join me in prayer? Lord, may the words of, of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts, Lord, may they be found acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, friends, today we kick off our series, Cliche, The Truth Behind the Bumper Sticker. And for the rest of July, we're going to be picking at three verses, three verses. Um, today, we're going to be looking at the Lord himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. And, and next week, we're going to look at Matthew verse, or chapter 7, verse 1. In the, in the old tradition, it goes like this. Judge not, lest ye be judged. Dun, dun, dun. Right? It's one of our favorites. And then we're going to call up our, uh, on our last week. We're going to look at Philippians 4.13. We all have it. We have it on our doors. We have it on our coffee mugs. For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Philippians 4.13, a, a wonderfully powerful verse. Something amazing happens when we read the Bible and, and the Holy Spirit speaks to us. Right? The Holy Spirit speaks to us and we key on these verses, these verses that speak to our lives very intimately. And, and what we often do is we take those verses and we memorize them, right? Because that's what good people of faith do. We memorize the Bible. And we, we memorize the verse so we have it in our, in our toolbox so that when we're, when we're faced with challenges in our lives and, or when good things happen, we can, we can rely on those key verses, right? And so we can, they, come, they come to our mind and we can say them on the spot at any time. But what happens quite often, not intentionally, but we do that and we, we start using the verse um, and then we use it a little more and it drifts a little bit from the context and then we do it a little more and it drifts farther and farther from the context with which it was written. And not to devalue the verse in any way, we unintentionally have our, these verses become cliches or catchphrases as people of faith and they become like bumper stickers in our walk of faith, something we slap on that loses the depth of meaning that it has. So for the next three, week, three weeks, we're going to walk through these, um, these stories, um, the context behind these verses, these often used, many times they're tattooed, and I'm not judging anyone who tattoos scripture on their body. I, for one, can't be a judge of that, or else I would be very hypocritical. Um, but we want to get into their backstory. Who are these stories written to? What was the purpose? What was the context? And by doing so, I truly believe that we will, we will find ourselves reinvigorated with the stories so that these verses aren't simply cliches in our lives, but have new depth and meaning. And so um, I am excited to see what God is going to do through this series over the next few weeks. So to begin, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think in your head, not out loud, think in your head, not out loud, have you ever had a time in your life when you found yourself in a lose-lose scenario? when everything was falling apart. In your head, not out loud. I think most of us can think of a time when that has happened in our lives. 
I want you to, to sit with that emotion for a while. When I think about, think back on those events in my life, I get this like pit in my stomach where I'm like, oh, I don't want to think about that anymore. I'm past it. But I want you to think about it and wrestle with it for a minute. There's one issue that, that is an increasing concern for me personally and, and is something that I see in our culture that's becoming an, an epidemic. And, and this may seem like a jump for you, but bear with me. It's the reality of student loans in our culture. All right, now this is not a stewardship sermon, but I want you to think about student loans for a minute. I'm a Dave Ramsey person, and so I am, I am one of those guys who's trying to pay off all of their student loan debt. And I can tell you, paying off student loan debt has a toll it takes on a family. Okay, it does. It's hard. Recently, Forbes published an article that reported that there were over 44 million borrowers with over 1.3 trillion, I said trillion, dollars in student loan debt. The average student in the class of 2016 has $37,172 in student loan debt. Some days I look at that and I'm like, man, I wish that was my number, but, you know, hey, we got goals, right? They also reported that Pennsylvania, New York, and Michigan have among the highest student loan debt per capita in the nation. So friends, we're in the top three, but not in a good way, right? Student loans are, are a real issue in our, in our country. Um, I remember a friend of our family um, who, when she found out but well, she got her first student loan bill, right? Anybody who's had student loans know that, that like so many months after you go out of school, like six months later, you get this lovely letter in the mail that reminds you how much you've borrowed and how much they expect back. Well, my friend had um, gotten this letter in the mail and she was stunned because the amount that her payments um, became were a big percentage of her new income at her new job. And friends, her new job was an amazing job, or is an amazing job, working with college students in ministry, right? Very much a God-given job where God was giving her an opportunity to live out her calling. But oh man, she got that letter. And she did what all of us do. Um, if you're younger in the room or older, I hope this resounds with you. She went home. Sometimes the best things for us in times of trouble is to go talk to mom and dad, right? So she goes home to see her parents. And this is what she does. She goes in the backyard. Oh, bear with me now. It's easier getting down than up. She lays down in the backyard, looks up at the sky. She says, God, I'm done with this. Fix it. And she just laid there. She's laying on the ground. She's laying in the grass, praying to God to fix this problem of student loans waiting for God to rain down money from heaven because this, if God got her this job, if God got her this job, surely God could fix this problem, right? God could give her this job. Surely God could fix the problem. But unfortunately, God did not rain money down on her that day and fix the student loan debt. Um, in fact, she had to do what we all have to do. She had to go to work, right? She had to renegotiate her repayment plan But she found herself saying, I'm sure the Lord himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. This is the way we often respond when things get outside of our control. We throw up our hands and we say, God, you fix this. Fix this for me. Because your scripture says, Lord, if you will, you will fight for me, just, I just have to stay calm. That's what your word tells me. You fix it. And we give up. 
And sometimes we, we give up too much, too much. A few years ago, uh, um, a family member of mine um, who was, uh, he was in a hard spot. Um, he, was, he was an atheist. He'd renounced his faith. He'd, he didn't believe in God. And, and, um, but he had, he had been working in his life, and he'd met this woman, and, and he, they, they were in love, and they got engaged, and she had kids, and he was, he was like a stepfather to these kids, even though they weren't married. He was helping raise these kids, and, and, um, and he loved her, and, and he got the letter in the mail about some forgotten student loan debts that had caught up with him. And... Um, as his financial world collapsed around him, paired with the stress and depression of dealing with the anniversary of his father and mother's death, it was more than he could take. Excuse me. And he gave up too. Each of us has our own way of coping with stress in our lives. Sometimes, sometimes, and I'm guilty of this, we go on the offensive, right? We go on the offensive, and we're going we're gonna to fight this battle, and we create, if you're like me, you create a list. Anybody list lover here besides me? You create a list, top to bottom, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, and then we use the oh-so-beloved little boxes that we put next to the list so we can check it off as we go. Or, if you're even more like me, you get those really broad, sharpie markers that one swipe, you can cross out the whole line. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Some of you are waving, shaking your heads. You know the joy of crossing out those things on that list. That's one way we respond. Other times we respond by, in stressful situations by completely ignoring them in the first place. We say, you know what, I'm not going to worry about that. I'm going to take my ball and I'm going to go play somewhere else, Right? Maybe if I ignore the situation for long enough, it'll just go away, but we all know that the situation never goes away, right? Never goes away. And then there are times when we, good people of faith, remember that God is with us through everything in our lives. God is with us. And we say, God, it's your turn. It's your turn. I'm giving this up to you. If you can be for me, God, who can be against me? After all, your scripture says that the Lord himself will fight for you. Just stay calm, right? It's little wonder why this verse gets used so often in times of trial. It's life-giving, but the problem is, is without the context behind this verse, we don't fully understand the depth. It becomes hollow. It becomes a catchphrase of our giving up mentality. It does. And this is where we find ourselves in Exodus today. This is where we find ourselves in Exodus, a place of surrender, a beat down, broken up life has chewed you up and spit you out, got nothing left to give, can't go no further, place of life. Recall the story with me for a moment. Um, the Hebrews people are in um, Egypt, right? That's our location today. They used to be free people because Joseph, right, Joseph and Right? He, he, he was there and his brothers came and he, through this famine and they were, they were free people but, but then they became slaves because the new, um, the new king, the new pharaoh was like, man, these, these Hebrews, they're being fruitful and multiplying like no other. We gotta do something about this. And so they enslaved them. They enslaved the Hebrew people. And they weren't necessarily nice. I mean, if you can imagine being a slave, most of us can't imagine 
So we're going to look real quick in the beginning of Exodus. I'm going to read from Exodus chapter 1, and um, if you don't have your Bibles, that's okay. It's going to be projected up on the screens, and we're going to do something a little different with our scripture today. As the scriptures pop up, you're going to see words that are read, words that are read. And what I want you to do is, as I'm reading these verses, when the red words come up, I want you to say them out loud with me, okay? So this is how the Exodus 1 begins, all right? So Exodus chapter 1, starting in verse 13, we find these words. So the Egyptians worked the people of Israel without mercy. They made their lives bitter, forcing them to mix mortar and make bricks and do all the work in the fields. They were ruthless in all their demands. Good job, that was great. Keep your eyes open, they're gonna keep coming as we go through these scriptures. Pharaoh, in order to keep the population of, under control, he enslaves the people of Israel. Not only that, he has this law that he passes that all of the boys, the children are gonna be thrown into the Nile, right? And so there's one kid who, who survives, I'm sure there are probably more, but one that we remember, but this one boy is saved in the Nile by Pharaoh's daughter, right? His name is Moses, right? We've heard the story of Moses many times. Moses grows up, he kills an Egyptian, he flees Egypt, he, he has the encounter with God at the burning bush, and then God tells him, you gotta go back and, and um, free the people of Israel, I'm gonna send you, and, and Moses goes, but not before he argues with God a little bit. I love that part. I don't know, God, doesn't seem like something I wanna do. Come on. But he ends up going. Moses starts to urge Pharaoh to free the Israelites, and Pharaoh makes the work even harder for the Hebrews, right? It gets even worse. But finally, Pharaoh relents after the plagues are sent, and he lets the people of Israel go, and this is where our story picks up, okay? If you want to recap all that, you can go back and read the first 14 chapters of Exodus. I'm going to call it good for this morning. This is where we find ourselves. So in Exodus, Exodus chapter 14, starting in verse five, we find this. When word reached the king of Egypt that the Israelites had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds. What have we done letting all those people of Israel, all those Israelite slaves get away, they asked. I want you to think about this for a moment. I mean, Pharaoh gets a bad rap, right? But mostly it's justified. He's not really the nicest guy, not the best ruler in the world. But think about what it would have meant this exodus, this departure of the Israelites, of the Hebrew people from Egypt. Imagine the social economic response of the country. If every construction worker and brick maker, every agricultural worker, every planter, tender, and harvester was one day gone, what would that do to the infrastructure of the city of Egypt? What would it do to the United States if, if tomorrow, Monday morning, tomorrow, um, every factory closed and every farm closed not to be reopened? What would happen to our country? This is a big thing that happens in Egypt, a big thing. So Pharaoh responds, and this is what he does. So Pharaoh harnessed his chariot and called up his troops he took with him 600 of Egypt's best chariots, along with the rest of the chariots of Egypt, each with its commander. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, so he chased after the people of Israel who left with fists raised in defiance. <laughs> the Egyptian, Egyptians chased after them with all 
the forces of Pharaoh's army, all his horses, all his chariots, all his charioteers, all his troops. Pharaoh changes his mind, and the only way to right the wrong is to go to war. And notice, he doesn't just go to war. He goes to war first with his best, 600 chariots. And then, on top of it, all the rest of the chariots, and all the horses, and all the troops. Pharaoh was prepared for war. If they're not going to come back, we'll force them back. This is how Pharaoh responds. The people, or sorry, the Egyptians caught up with the people of Israel as they were camped beside the shoreline near Pi Hahiroth across from Baal Zephon. Aren't you glad I didn't make those red? One of these times, just to see if you were paying attention. I want you to imagine, and this is very hard for most of us, what it would be like to live your entire life as a slave. Most of us will never even be able to come close to what that would actually mean. Generational slavery, meaning that you were born a slave and you will die a slave. The best that your kids will ever have is the life of a slave. This is where the Hebrew people were, right? Generational slavery, constant hurt, pain, brutal conditions. But on the upside, it's all you've ever known, right? It's not like there could be anything better out there for you. Something amazing and something terrifying happens. These two guys come to Egypt and say, we're gonna set you free. And so at first you're skeptical. I don't know. I don't know if it's gonna happen. We'll see. It doesn't take very long of of Moses rubbing Pharaoh the wrong way to realize that there's gonna be a change and it's not a good one. Because immediately your quotas go up, your materials go away, and and the working conditions get even harder. This whole concept of freedom that you thought you wanted may come at too high of a cost. But you remain faithful, hoping that something may come out of the endeavor. And then the Passover happens, and the firstborn children of Egypt, all the Egyptians, are slain. And with another visible sign of God's active presence, you are freed to leave Egypt with fists held in defiance. (laughs) That's how it says they left. For the first time in your life, you're walking out of Egypt a free person with a whole new reality. Not only are you free, but your kids are free and their kids are gonna be free into a world of unknown and often unknown worlds and and lack lack of your routines cause anxiety and fear. But for the moment, everything has changed. So you find yourself on the shoreline of the Red Sea Camped out. Now, camping in this time period is not like camping with us with RVs and, you know, air conditioners and satellite dishes and all that stuff, right? Um, Not necessarily camping as we would consider camping, but freedom nonetheless. Freedom nonetheless. That's the first time in my life that I've ever saw my family number come up on the thing. You know that's a good thing. I'm sorry. (laughs) No, it's okay. Aaron's gone. The people of uh, the Hebrew people are camped on the shoreline. Imagine, if you will, you wake up in the morning and you're free and you feel freedom for the first time and you walk out of your tent and you see the Red Sea and you turn and you look inland and you see Pharaoh's army pressing down on you. This newfound freedom appears to be short-lived. 
in my experience, this is how the big life-changing events often hit us. This is it, right? It's when we're sitting on the beach, when we think we have everything figured out, when everything's going the way that it should. And then the phone rings. The text message chimes. The email comes up. And the control that we think we have falls apart. Now, sometimes life-crushing events are cumulative, but it seems for me the biggest events come when I least expect them. And they appear on the horizon. As Pharaoh approached, the people of Israel looked up and panicked when they saw the Egyptians taking them. They cried out to the Lord and they said to Moses, why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Weren't there enough graves for us in Egypt? What have you done to us? Why did you make us leave Egypt? Didn't we tell you this would happen while we were still in Egypt? We said, leave us alone. I mean, exclamation point. Leave us alone, right? Let us be slaves to the Egyptians. It is better to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. (laughs) Sometimes folks ask me, Tim, why do you believe and trust in the Bible? Let me tell you, outside of my personal experience of the Holy Spirit while reading Scripture, it's stories like these that give us the real story, real truth, like real humanness and brokenness. Because this is, this is us, not the TV show, this is us in real life as we deal with problems in our lives. The Israelites saw the Egyptians coming and they panicked, recognized the order in which they respond, their honest response. Who do they get mad at first? God, right? They cry out to the Lord. They say, why God? And then they get mad at who? Moses, their leader. Moses, what have you done to us? Why did you make us leave Egypt? (laughs) And this is what we do. We cry out to God. And then we blame the people that we say led us there. Sometimes we blame our spouse. Sometimes we blame our employer. Sometimes we blame our family, immediate or extended. Sometimes it's our friends. Sometimes it's our financial advisors. We blame someone. And when there's no one left to blame, we blame ourselves, right? And if you have a personality type like me, that blame can transform into a toxic guilt and shame that follows us for years into the future. I want you to try to understand the heart of the people of Israel here because they're being honest in what they're saying. They were slaves, but now they're free. And that freedom has come with a price and has come with danger. And so they fall back on the only name that they trust. The only name that they trust. Who is it? It's not God. Who is it that they're trusting in? Listen to the words again. Weren't there enough graves for us in Egypt? What have you done to us? Why did you make us leave Egypt? Didn't we tell you this would happen while we were still in Egypt? We said, leave us alone. Let us be slaves to the Egyptians. It's better for us to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. Friends, the people of Israel, the Hebrew people, found their faith and trust in Egypt because that's what they knew. For so many of us, this is our issue as well. 
Whether we like it or not, that which we are comfortable with becomes what we put our trust in. And for the people of Israel, that was Egypt. So Moses responds to this challenge in a very prophetic way. He says this, but Moses told the people, don't be afraid, just stand still and watch the Lord rescue you today. The Egyptians you see today will never be seen again. The Lord himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. Moses gives three parts, three imperatives to the people of Israel. The people of Israel, the Hebrews, only can see two things. Two things. I envision it as a line, okay? All they can see is myself or themselves and the problem. They're cornered. Their back is up against the Red Sea. There's no escape. It's a lose-lose situation, right? There's, no, there's nothing they can do. They don't know the end of the story yet. They're living it right now. And all they can see is themselves and the problem that's pressing down on them, right? And that's like us. Often, when troubles find us, all we can see is ourselves and the problem. But Moses does something amazing. He opens the people to a truer reality. He says the name Yahweh twice. Everyone say Yahweh. Yahweh. You see, that wouldn't have happened in that time because people didn't speak the name of God out loud, nor did they write it down. They didn't live in a culture where OMG was, was cliche and just something everyone said, and the Lord's name was never used out loud. And so for Moses to say the name of God, to say Yahweh, it was important. Whenever you read early in the Bible, in the first books, in the Pentateuch, these, these, these stories, and you see in quotation someone saying the name of God, realize that that's an important thing. God, or Moses says, Yahweh. He says, don't be afraid. Just stand still and watch Yahweh rescue you today. Yahweh himself will fight for you. You see, what Moses is telling the people of Egypt who are afraid is that there's another player on the field, an active player. It's not just the individual or the people and the problem. It's not a line this way. It's actually like a triangle, see? It's the people, God, and the problem, or the problem, God, and the people, or God, the problem, and the people. You see, what Moses is telling the people is that it's not just us and the army right now. It's us and the army and God, that God is actively present and here with us in this moment, just as God was with you in Egypt, which the Bible tells us that, that God heard the people's crying, right? God was actively present then. God is actively present now. Not just a bystander, but a third player on the field. So Moses reminds the people of that. So he says, do not be afraid. Yahweh is there. And we think of this, do not be afraid. It's really quite ridiculous if it weren't for God, right? Because think of it, you're, you're sitting with your back up against the wall and there's an army pressing down on you and Moses says, hey, don't be afraid. Everything's gonna be all right. I, there's one guy in the back, I'm sure, who's like, Moses, do you, do you have a plan? Do you have a list with check boxes? Right? Moses says, do not be afraid. Even though you're in danger, right? Even though you're in danger, don't be afraid because God is present and active. 
And because God is present and active, our perception of what's going on, the big picture, expands. God gives, or Moses gives two more imperatives. He says to stand still and to watch the Lord rescue you today. We know the end of the story, right? We know, like in typical Charlton Heston fashion, that Moses is gonna stand up on the edge of the sea, the Red Sea, he's gonna lift up that stick, and you know, the waves are gonna come back. Most of you are like, who is Charlton Heston? Anybody know who Charlton Heston is? Okay, okay, whoo. <laughs> typical Charlton Heston fashion, and that sea is gonna part, and the people are gonna walk through, and the waves are gonna come back down, and they're gonna crush the Egyptian army. But the people didn't know that at the time. They didn't know that was gonna happen when Moses said these words. Be still and watch is what he says. We have the opportunity to be still, to rest and respond for a moment and to watch because the same God who is present with them at the Red Sea is the same God who is present with them in Egypt. Is the same God that was with Joseph when he was taken as a slave. Is the same God Moses calls them to not fear, to stand still, and to watch. And I personally believe that while this story is about a people, that we as individuals can take it and learn from it as well. So we're going to go to my so what stuff, right? Every time you hear a message, you're like, well, that's a great message, Pastor, but so what? What does it mean to me in my life? So what I want to do is I want to give you three things that you can say and remind yourself when these things happen, when, when your modern-day Egyptian army comes up against you. How, do you, how you respond. So first, I want everyone to say this. Do not fear. Do not fear. I want you to memorize that, to say to yourself when life comes at you, do not fear. This is what Moses said, and this is what the Egyptians heard. Do not fear. You are not the only person in this situation. It's not just you and your problem. It's not just you and your problem. It is God, you, and your problem. There's someone else on the playing field besides you and you are not alone. Do not fear. When we recognize that there's another player on the field with us, our perception changes, right? And sometimes we win and sometimes we lose. I'm not gonna say that when, you're not, when you have no fear that you're gonna be successful all the time. You know, I'm not saying that God's gonna part your Red Sea. I'm not gonna say that God's gonna make money fall from the sky to pay off your student loans. Equally, I'm not going to say that if you have God with you, that you're going to win all the time. That's not the way life happens. That's not the way it works. When your perception expands and you realize that Yahweh is active in your life, your fear subsides as you place your trust in Christ. Remember that God does not call us to be successful. He calls us to be faithful. If you write nothing else down today, write this phrase down. God does not call us to be successful. God calls us to be faithful. So do not fear. Number two is just stand still. Everyone say that. Just stand still. When we've recognized that God is present in our trials and we are resting without fear and we put our faith and our trust in God, so often we are quick to jump in. We're quick to go on the offensive. Now granted, there are some things that have to be done now. But I, what I want to encourage you to do is to pump the brakes for a minute to just slow down, to pause, to breathe. Just stand still for a moment and rest. Take the moment to reflect, 
to meditate, to read your Bible, to pray. I think one of the failings that we have as people of faith is sometimes we forget this step and we just jump in and try to fix it. So, feed your faith as you recognize God's presence amidst your trial. Number three, watch the Lord. Everyone say, watch the Lord. Watch the Lord. Watch the Lord. This is the third imperative that Moses gives. Now, I said, I cannot guarantee you that God will part your Red Sea. God will not do for you what you are meant to do for yourself. But we can watch the Lord past and present because just like God was present, actively present with the people of Israel in Egypt and at the Red Sea, God has been actively present in our lives before this thing happened in our lives that came crashing down on us and during. It is a part of our discipleship as believers in Christ to pause and meditate on the ways and places we've seen God in our life. Actively present, and in the past. So reflect on God's active presence in your life and watch and recognize God as he works in, around, and through you. Three things, three simple things. Do not fear, just stand still and watch the Lord. Let's pray. God of all grace and love, sometimes the events of our life leave us blinded to your active presence. God, make us to be fearless people as we place our hope and trust in you. Let us never forget your grace and love amidst our times of deepest trial. Let your spirit work in us anew in the days to come as we seek to live faithful lives honoring you. It's through Christ that we pray. And the people of God said, amen.